And Matthew 18 is our text this morning. If you've been here with us in recent weeks, this isn't news to you, but we're studying the words of Jesus, um, and uh, that's why the series is called Red Letters. Um, so what we've established so far, uh, just so everyone is on the same page and you don't feel like you've come in at the end of the movie and you've missed too much, um, but we've established a, a pretty simple kind of um, way of understanding red letters and why they're so important over the last couple of weeks. And it's some, something I think you can take with you, and it'll be pretty beneficial. It's very simple, though, so it, it, you might not be too impressed, but we've decided that red letters equal live better. So if you want to know how to live better, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a Jesus follower, if you were to open up the Bible to the red letters and you were to say, hey, I'm going to see what this Jesus guy has to say, and you were to, to follow those commands, follow those orders, follow those rules, follow that lifestyle, your life would be undeniably and unquestionably better. And we've studied this the last couple of weeks, and we've come to this conclusion that absolutely red letters will always equal a life lived better. And of course, red letters instantly make us think of Jesus' words because 120 years ago, um, amidst a falling away of the church in America um, around the turn of the century into the 1900s, um, a guy named Louis Klopsch wanted to bring attention to the words of Jesus. He believed that the words of Jesus could still change the world, and he set out with a, uh, an institute to uh, print Bibles with the words of Jesus in red. And of course, that trend caught on, and many Bibles to this day are still printed like that. But now, if you haven't been here, you, you pretty much are already caught up. But don't worry, regardless, today's message is going to stand on its own two feet. And I'm so glad you're here uh, because it's an extra, super special, and very important message. Not because it's from me, but because it's straight from the mouth and the heart of Jesus. So just a heads up, this message is unapologetically about the importance of the next generation and the effort that God demands that we take in reaching, engaging, and impacting children of all ages. Now again, this message is not mine. It belongs to Jesus and it's from Jesus, which means that anytime a pastor needs to or feels led to address the value um, and the focus that should be on children or any time that we celebrate kids and, and, and how God's kingdom welcomes them in, um, Jesus makes our job very easy. But it also means that I and we cannot take this message lightly, right? as we can't take any of the words of Jesus lightly. Because after all, how can we possibly ignore the words of the resurrected Savior? Right? How in the world can we, under, can we know and believe and have so much proof that He rose again? His words being written down, still around. We can't afford to ignore such valuable and timeless Truths. And in saying that, this is one of the most important messages you'll ever hear. And every time you hear it, because you'll hear it again, it gets more important if that's even possible. Again, not because of what I or any preacher has to say about the subject, but because honestly the words of Jesus are so clear, even provocative, so pointed that there's really nothing you can add or say, but there's plenty worth talking about in response. And really, speaking of response, this message demands a response from every single one of us. That includes you, just in case you were wondering. So before we hear Jesus' words, I want to frame this so that we'll hear them as if we were in His audience 
2,000 years ago. So i got to set this up for you just a little bit. And as you know, Jesus came on the scene uh, with a big, in a big way, made a big splash, gathered a tremendous following of thousands of people from the towns of Galilee and Judea, and he preached about a kingdom that was on its way. It was on the doorstep of everyone's lives. And naturally, the people heard kingdom, and they thought Messiah, and they immediately thought of how their lives were about to take an elevator up. They immediately thought and began to dream about all the success, all the prosperity, all the fortune, all the gain. And I mean, they begin to wonder, can we even contain the fortune? I mean, we may have to build bigger barns. We may have to build bigger homes. You know, Jesus could read minds, and He would often tell parables based on the things that people were thinking about. Of course, he told a parable about that one once or twice. But they begin to think, you know what? We might possibly have too much money once we're done with this Jesus thing, right? We might be too well off. We might have too much happiness. We might feel too good. I mean, if this is really going to be what we think it's going to be, we're going to be set for life and maybe one after. Jesus began demonstrating the power of God's kingdom. He began to heal people and perform miracles. Not everyone was healed. Not everyone received a miracle. But Jesus did these things on purpose. He would always try to do things, and we'd tell people He was doing things to show His power over sin, His ability to change hearts. But most people didn't stick around for the moral lessons after these miracles. They just focused on the miracles and thought, wow, this is too good to be true. And the crowds grew, and they grew, and they grew, and then suddenly, abruptly even, the miracles were less and less frequent. And Jesus began preaching more than He was performing. Jesus basically became a one-sermon preacher. If you read the Gospels from the middle part on, He pretty much preaches the same message over and over and over again about sacrifice, about loss, about suffering, about death, but for the greater good. Suddenly, Jesus became less about performing for the crowds and all about pursuing the one. He kept talking about how he was going to die and that the following, uh, and that following him would likewise cost something great. And he demanded extraordinary sacrifice and humility. He would say things like, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and take my example and live after me. If anyone doesn't give up everything to follow me, he isn't worthy of me. And people would say, Jesus, who do you think you are? He wouldn't respond. As you would imagine, the momentum cooled, the crowds thinned, but there were still hundreds that would flock to Jesus at any given opportunity because he spoke with such authority. And he spoke to those who had nothing. Those that had been left out and cast out and called out by the rest of society. And he always offered them a platform. Jesus' entire ministry was about going down to where people were and saying, you can join me. I've extended the platform of God. I've shared my place with you. And if you listen to Jesus' words throughout the Gospels, He calls us to give and serve and sacrifice. But they are never near hollow, empty commandments. They are filled with purpose. And they're filled with redemption. Because all of these commands were all about how Jesus came to be a champion for the world. To seek and save the lost, broken, forgotten, and the forsaken. The world needed a hero and He came to be that champion that everyone's heart longed for. But His more refined, His more well-to-do followers, the one who already had life better than most, 
and we're just looking for more and bigger and greater, even as if, even if it was at the expense of the weaker. As time moved on, these felt like they were not on the same page as Jesus. But they pushed forward, because surely Jesus would come back around. Jesus continued to lead His followers in one direction, but they were tracking in a completely different direction. And, and one time, Peter literally rebukes Jesus in the middle of a sermon. Kind of embarrassing, I would imagine. So Jesus decides to have a meeting with some of the key guys in his group to recalibrate the movement. So he takes the big three up to a mountain that was towering over Galilee. And as they ascend this mountain, fog begins to build. The sun gets ten times brighter. And Jesus literally begins to glow with, with this heavenly radiance and glory. And it must have been a really long, tiring hike. And here's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is absolutely inspired. Because you wouldn't make this stuff up. If you were fabricating a story um, and you were trying to sell the world on something, the Gospels tell us when they got to the top, the wind is howling, the sun is shining, Jesus is literally beaming with radiant light. And the Gospels tell us in Luke that Peter was sleepy. And actually began to nod off. And can you imagine someone literally missing out on what was going on in front of him? But that's our nature. Anyways, the moral of that story is that in the moment God the Father brought this special attention to Jesus so that the big three would see Him and know Him without a doubt as the Messiah. And a voice comes from heaven amidst all the glory and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. As in you haven't really been listening to Him. As His message has shifted in a direction that many weren't willing to go in. And this is so relevant to us. This is why it's so important that I preface all of this with this. Because if they, if they heard and saw red letters live and uncut, and somehow made it all about themselves and lost the plot, then how prone must we be? I mean, if they saw all this in live and in person, and they still somehow twisted the words of Jesus to be all about themselves, how prone are we to wonder and to drift? Now, that's just something to think about. Maybe you aren't as prone as them. I don't know. But nonetheless, we need to listen closely, don't we? And they come off the mountain. Jesus sent them on ahead. And, and as they were beaming from this experience, what they saw, what they heard, and they're walking, you know, they're, just, they're, they're coming down, you know, they're taking big steps. They think, wow, we have just saw God in His full glory. And they think Jesus, the Messiah, at any minute is going to usher in His kingdom. And as Peter leads the gang back into town, a man with a boy in his arms as if it had been slain. A man comes and begins to plea with the disciples for them to help his son, who they believe to be possessed and tormented by the devil. Now just to address this, in a day when the Son of God had come to earth and dwelt with people, it should be as no surprise that the devil in every evil force sought to counter and combat him in every way. So if you ever wonder, why are these demon possessions in the Bible? Why are these, so, these encounters in the New Testament between Jesus and the devil? Why was that going on and does that still go on? I'm not commenting on today, but in, that, in these days, in those days, where the Son of God literally walked out of heaven onto earth, it should be no surprise that the devil and all of his demons sought to counter him in every unique and intense way possible. The story goes that Peter and the rest could not, and I'll interject, would not help the young boy. 
They weren't really interested in helping the young boy. You see, they were on the road to a better place, to a greater lifestyle. They didn't have time for someone like this. And maybe they offered a prayer just to pacify the man, but the efforts they made didn't make a difference at all, and they really weren't concerned at all. Until Jesus came into town and found the man in disbelief, shocked that he had been passed by so quickly. And his son that had been given up on so easily, treated so carelessly. And again, here's how I know it's more of a we don't have time and we don't care more than it was or we don't know how or we don't know what to do. Because listen to how Jesus responds to his disciples. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Oh, I am so sorry, sir. I set up a church that was supposed to be able to help people like you, children like yours, and my disciples, shame on them for not helping you. The boy was delivered from the demon, and this, the disciples then decided to pretend like they actually cared. But Jesus calls them out for their lack of preparation, their lack of dedication to the call so near and dear to his heart. And they come at Jesus and they say, well, Jesus, you know, you know why, why, you know, what, what, what was the difference? And he says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain. Let me say this. This mountain is not what you want whenever you want it. This mountain refers to the most difficult of tasks that you don't want to do or that you don't care to do or don't know how to do. This mountain does not refer to, well, I can get whatever I want when I want it. This mountain refers to, what has God called you to do? What has God called you to do? Who has God called you to help that you don't think is important or you don't really care to make a difference or make an effort? The disciples, for the disciples, this mountain was that child. It was people like that child. The object of their faith, it wasn't concerned about the mission. It wasn't concerned about the ones who needed God the most. So Jesus scolds them. Citing that if they were truly praying for God's kingdom, if they were truly expecting God's kingdom, the desires of their heart would change. And move in the direction of those with the greatest needs, they would be determined to help and give up whatever they had to to help. And Jesus says, if y'all want to be this kind of church, it's going to come by prayer and fasting. Only as in it's going to come by doing whatever you've got to do, giving up whatever you've got to give up, determined beyond whatever limitations you may face. Just like God had moved in the direction which was why Jesus came to die, right? Why He came to suffer. Why He came to sacrifice His life to save us. But most of all, to be clear, to make it clear to those who were overlooked, the mission of His heart was for them. But the disciples, they weren't interested. They weren't interested. They weren't concerned that they lacked the ambition, the resources, or the infrastructure to help a generation in need. And this was very concerning to Jesus. It still is. And even after all of this, the disciples still had their heads in the clouds. And the next day they began to argue over who was Jesus' favorite. And I would interject, he probably didn't have a favorite at this point. Right? Who was his favorite? Who was the greatest? Who deserved to be the most blessed? Who deserved to be given the most privilege in the future? And as they had proven themselves worthy of anything, or if they had proven themselves worthy of anything... If you got your place there in Matthew 18, look down and see how Jesus responds to this brazen and this bold question they ask Him. 
At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him because they had recently had a very bad experience with a little child who they didn't want to help and didn't think they needed to help. So Jesus calls a little child to them and set him in the midst of them. He said, okay, okay, class, exhibit A. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, oh, Jesus, we don't need to be converted. We've been able to do what you do. We're, we're as powerful as you. We're as smart as you. We're as holy as you. He said, no, 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 no. You still miss something. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You know what Jesus just did there? He makes children the example of his rule, not the exception to his rule. Jesus says, if you want to know what greatness looks like, look at your children. All the children in the world, they get glimpses of God when they taste and see that He is better than anyone else. They model for you the way to live. And I've seen this, and you've seen this. There's an earnest dependency about children when they get a glimpse of God. Jesus built and extended a platform for everyone to step up onto and encounter God. And over and over again, He makes it clear that children deserve center stage, the utmost attention. And here's the thing. Now, obviously, they need us, but we also need them to show us the way to God. You know what I've learned through the years, having the privilege to be a part of so many VBS programs? This is so, so true. The confidence that fills children as they realize the power or as the power is realized to its full potential in them. When God's love for them blooms in their hearts, the boldness and the energy, it's so contagious. Hearing our kids, my nieces and nephews, sing and recite Bible verses and stories, it's so moving. Seeing kids engaged and connected to God's Word, it's so heavy. Ask some of the station workers from the past. Come and see it this week. Ask them next week if anyone has ever stepped into the kingdom of God. If anyone has ever strolled the streets of the spiritual realm. If anyone has ever been filled and thrilled and instilled by the power of heaven. It's children when they are given access and opportunities to take center stage. Too often we consider children in the way the world that Jesus walked into did. Religion views children as commodities, as expendable, as dispensable. Children were seen as stumbling blocks by religion. And that's why children get left behind. They're noisy. They're messy. They're fussy. As if you aren't. Jesus can. Some of y'all, y'all can say, well, heck with you, I'll be out of here. That's fine. Jesus came into a world that had sent kids to the back, escorted them out of a holy place to a waiting place. And you know what I've learned from kids? Maybe because I'm still part one. Kids refuse to see things as they are. Kids allow their imaginations to overpower the apparent conditions that we think will never change. For this reason, children always can imagine a better version of what we often have settled with. Kids always can see how it can be done a little bit better. And that aggravates you, doesn't it? But don't you wish you had that? 
Now, it threatens our intelligence. It insults us sometimes. It challenges us. Kids often are too ideal, too pragmatic, too flexible for things that we think are set in stone. Kids never see the downside in doing whatever it takes to make things better. And, that con- and they constantly remind you of this at home, don't they? Why don't you do it this way? Why don't you do it that way? And they don't see the limitations. They don't see the budgets, do they? they of course, we're wiser and we're older and they don't see and understand how things just are going to have to be. Maybe they refuse to accept and believe that things can't change. And maybe they refuse to believe that things can't be better. And maybe, maybe that's why God sent His Son to save the world because He knew that a child would be the best possible candidate to change everything. Woo, right? I mean, maybe that's why God sent His Son to change the world so He could see the world through the eyes of a child and Jesus was not willing to let anything get in the way. we got to get rid of the whole old covenant. Let's get rid of every last bit of it. I don't care what or who gets offended. You heard Moses say it? Who's Moses? Let me introduce you to Jesus. I mean, maybe that's why, right? Because he wasn't willing to let anything get in the way between you and God. Whatever it takes, right? We can't afford that. We can't do that. That's just not going to happen, right? Whatever it takes. Isn't that the scenario that Jesus goes on to describe? Look at verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety-nine. Even so, if it, even so, it is not, is it not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? Jesus entered a world that gave no value, no voice, had no room for children. And here Jesus makes, and here Jesus makes this monumental, this foundational shifting statement as he takes, as he tells his own that they could learn a thing or two from the least of those among them. After this, Jesus is approached by some religious leaders on a topic that's very controversial. It was then, it is now. They come and ask him some questions about divorce. Now, what's clear, uh, what's clear about the conversation is that Jesus speaks out against divorce because it was being promoted over and against reconciliation and restoration. It was convenient for men to just push the ladies aside and not care about what happens to the kids because law protected them. And while Jesus may, have, may seem against divorce, He was very much for divorced people. And whether or not marriage can, a marriage can be saved doesn't mean that people can't be saved. It doesn't mean that people in the aftermath can't be helped. Perhaps Jesus spoke out on this controversial subject because He wanted to make sure it was known that He was for those who were often left behind by broken homes, those damaged the most by broken homes. Children. And I believe that it was Jesus, it's what Jesus tried to establish because right after this, down in, over in chapter 19, verse number 13, right after Jesus has this conversation about divorce and the aftermath of divorce, some children are brought to Him. Perhaps maybe there was a single parent in the audience that day that heard Jesus speak with such empathy toward them. 
And unlike religious figures who seemed to lack any concern or care for them, Jesus made them feel courageous, not condemned. Accepted, not outcast. Empowered, not excommunicated. Jesus acknowledged the pain that religious religion had taught them to deal with, and even worse, blamed them for. Pain that religion seemed to endorse and promote. And maybe it was a single mother of which Jesus would often champion. Maybe it was a single mom who felt empowered to bring her child to Jesus. And verse number 13 says that the, then little children were brought to Him that He might put His hands on them and pray. Just asking for Jesus to pray over them and help them see the courage and the compassion they could find in Him. Jesus gave so many a voice that religion and sin had muzzled. He gave them a platform, a place. He gave them a home. And maybe a single mom who knew her damage wasn't even her concern anymore, but her kids were all she cared about. And here was this man who took up for her and acknowledged what religion refused to. The kids matter. The kids should be, uh, become before decisions and policies and self-interest. Maybe she heard Jesus one, on one occasion say that all the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Maybe this child who had no father, this mother was convinced that Jesus was the picture of the perfect heavenly father. So this child is brought to Jesus and lo and behold, the response is not as she expected. Or maybe she didn't. Or maybe she wasn't surprised. The disciples rebuked the children. That's what it says in verse 13. But the disciples rebuked them. Maybe it was Peter, I don't know. Hey, hey, wait a minute, ma'am. The hands that heal, the hands that command the seas, they are too good. They are too busy for your child. Don't you see we're having official religions, religious conversations up here? We don't have time for this. But the next verse tells us that Jesus counters and rebukes them, saying, no, no, these hands, their utmost purpose is to embrace God's children. And as he puts it in verse 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and departed from there. Can you feel the gravity of what Jesus just said in 14? The kingdom belongs to children. The kingdom is primarily reserved for children. It prioritizes them. And we can say in our sophistication, in our refinement, oh, but but kids don't see the world properly. They just don't have good judgment or good sense or good discernment. And, And that's really our way of saying that kids aren't judgmental enough. Kids aren't cynical enough. They aren't pessimistic or divisive or combative enough. Right? You know what God's trying to teach us here? That children are willing and ready to put their complete and total trust in a loving, caring father. If they can just meet him. Children, there's no barrier in a child naturally that keeps them from putting their total and complete trust in a loving... There's a thumbprint on every soul that desires this. We seem to have an issue with that, don't we? You know, what's so sad is that often religion, even Christianity, takes a child's sense of wonder and joy and we indoctrinate them with hate and bitterness and critical spirits. 
Jesus tells us that this childlike wonder and faith isn't the wrong way, but it's the only way to enter and to enjoy the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus gives us this message ultimately to the church, the door, the gateway to God's kingdom to tell us, hey, the church isn't operated by kids. It's not promoted by kids. It's promoted and operated by you. And He makes it very clear and wants us to be the access, the way, the door that He is and that He was if we want to properly represent Him. We need to become like children in our faith, in our spirits, so that we reach those who remain far away from God. Because Jesus has made it clear that's His entire M.O. God humbled Himself, becoming a child. If we want to encounter Him, we must do the same. If we want to evangelize Him, we must remain the same. Childlike faith is the only kind of faith that moves the heart of God because at His heart, He is a loving Father. He's giving us this message today so that we might do a better job at leading the next generation to Him. Now let me be clear. This is not a slight on a previous generation of which many of you are a part of. This is an invitation for you to lead and build the kingdom, to reach the next generation of believers because as Jesus said in verse 14, that's what matters most to Him. This is a cry. This is a mandate. This is a plea to all of us. Take thought in what you're doing for the next generation. Not just those in our homes, but those in our church homes. And not those just in our church homes, but those without a home at all. If kids disinterest you, if you feel like you've done your part, you still don't see how important this is to the kingdom of God. And dare I say, you've never tasted it for yourself. If we see, if we still see or ever see God like a child sees, we'll know how important it is to reach those who remain as orphans to their Heavenly Father. You know, we all assemble in places like this week after week and we pray to be great in the kingdom. We measure greatness by success and spirituality. But Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, I measure success by your humility and willingness to lead. And church, I think it's safe for me to say that we can do a better job. We can lead better. Can't we? We can return to that old proverb that we learned as children, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Oh, that we would unlearn some things that we've learned. Lean back into God as one of His children if only to reach the next generation that needs Him. You know why I'm so passionate about this? Not just because of what I've seen in many kids, but because of what I know about myself. The church saved my life. Because all the while I've grown up as a Christian, I've grown up as a, ma- as a boy, then a man in our world today with so many avenues on every side of him at any given moment to walk away from God and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it with, with whom I ever want to do it with, right? But all along the way, there's been a voice with me that says, you know better, you can do better, you can be better because the church, the church saved my life. And many of you know this because you didn't get in until years of regret piled up. And it's not lost on me that if not for the church, I would be doing the very things that I still think about doing. 
and that some dark part of me would like to do. But God says you're better than that. It thrills my soul to hear kids in our church talk about their favorite songs, and they mean worship songs when they say that. You know what that's taught me as a pastor? You know why I've been here for all these years? Because I believe as strong as the world's pull is on every rising generation, I still believe that Jesus is stronger. I believe that He is irresistible if the church leads well. You know, i got to ask you this. You know that this is coming, probably. If the generation before us cared and led like we do, would we be here? Now, many of you, you've been around for a few generations, and you know. The previous generation, they did not stop. They didn't let their children fall behind or away from God. They invented Bible school. They they used flannel graphs, right, and chased them down the sidewalk, right? You know, RAs and GAs and Sunday school and youth nights and youth camp and trips and rallies, whatever it took, if it meant changing, it meant changing. Whatever we got to do to reach these children, we got to reach these children. Because my grandkid, my great-grandkid, they're not falling away from God. They mean too much to me, and they mean too much to God, and I'm doing whatever I got to do. And not just my kids, but anybody else's kids, because I see what God has done for me, and I can't leave somebody else behind. And the style of none of that made a difference. It was the substance. It was a generation that understood how serious the task was of leading well. Do you want to be great? Do you want to make a difference in God's kingdom? Look no further than the opportunity in front of you for the next generation. Show the world what it means to be a child of God, full of wonder and faith. Refuse to let the world keep those who belong to God. And I think if you were to ask Jesus, what sermon are you most proud of? What message would you repeat if you could do another one more time? I think it's this one. I love when we celebrate children, Bible school, baptism, dedication, because I feel like it's a chance for His most passionate and powerful sermon to get emphasized once more. Because know this. This is for every church, whatever generation you're part of. This is just, I think this is a timeless thing to remember. When we shove children aside, Jesus leaves this place and goes to find them. He has no problem leaving churches full of 99s if the one is still out there. He has no problem saying, hey, you've given me a lot of money, you've done a lot for me, you've sang a lot of songs, but you know what? You're not bound for the one. And I meant what I said back there. And my heart won't let me sit back and not care about the little ones that we've forgotten about. As we celebrate with kids this week, as we dedicate a new addition to our church, we are to examine our homes, our connection with friends and family, our dedication within our church. And this is not just about staying in business. This is about eternity and staying obedient. And that's far more serious and sacred to me. So I've got to ask you, What is the faith of the next generation worth to you? Let me just say, what is it worth in general? I think it's worth everything. 
How much is the next generation worth to you? I hope you value them as much as the previous valued you. Perhaps you need to lean back into your Heavenly Father today, recalibrate what means to be great. Perhaps you need to respond to God's call over your life. Your call, his call to lead better. Because you know better. And God knows there's a generation that needs better. We're going to sing one last song together. It's an invitation, but it's also just a response. The words are so powerful, you all know them. We've sang it so many times. They're a response to this invitation God has given us to know Him as Father. For us to remain little, humble and childlike, because that's who we are to God. If you have a need, I want you to come forward. I'll pray with you. If you want help finding God, I'm here to help you. And better than that, He's here to meet you. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for this opportunity to stand in front of your people today and echo what you said better than anybody ever could. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, look to the children. If you want to know what the kingdom is all about, look to your children. And that the children, actually, the kingdom belongs to them. Father, what, what the world needs is, is to see people of all ages humbly worshiping you as if they are earnestly dependent on you. Looking to you as their heavenly father. Being your child, your son, and your daughter. Father, if there's anybody in this house that they would admit that they've got a little bit too religious, too sophisticated, too stuffy about their faith, and they've forgotten where it all started. They've forgotten what it all is about. Father, for us as a church, as we begin this week of reaching out to our, our community, as we uh, pray over a life that you have brought into our community, Lord, let us not get away from this. Let us not feel like we can slip away and this doesn't mean anything to us. Lord, hold this over us because this is so important. And I say that because we were so important to you for you to do what you did for us. And that same truth applies for everybody else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.